So it's, it's my pleasure to introduce to the ACB membership, uh, someone who's been a, a friend of ACB for a number of years now. Uh, his name is Charles Cooper. So I first met Charles a few years back when I was still with National Industries for the Blind and actually a, a mutual friend of ours and of ACB's and ACB's. He tried to get away, but we pulled him back in. Um, Tony Stevens was part of the crew that um, brought Charles and his firm on as a consultant at National Industries for the Blind. And that relationship with Charles has carried over to doing some uh, advocacy work with ACB as well. Um, so Charles is the, the chair of Signal Group's uh, advocacy practice, and he serves a, a wide, diverse range of clients, both in the private sector as well as in the, the nonprofit space. He has an extensive history and background on Capitol Hill. Uh, so please give a warm welcome to Charles Cooper with Signal Group, here to provide a 2020 political outlook. Thank you very much. Can everybody hear me all right? Yeah. Great. How about this? A little bit better? Well, thank you for having me. And I really appreciate the opportunity to, to be here. Thanks to Eric and Clark and Claire and everyone else for inviting me. Uh, I'd especially like to thank, I think it's table number nine or 10, all the Floridians in the room from my home state of Florida. Uh, well, I thought, uh, I, thought I, would, I would give a quick presentation a little bit on an update on the House and Senate elections, uh, an update on the Democratic primary, a preview of the general election, and um, maybe a few thoughts on what all this means for policy in the coming year, if that sounds okay. Uh, we are not far from the election. We're 253 days away, and maybe some of us are already tired of it. I don't know. Uh, well, for, for folks who are too tired of it and don't want to listen, I'm going to give you a quick executive summary of what I'm going to say. Basically, uh, I think we really expect a roller coaster going forward until November. And secondly, the only thing that we can actually predict, and I will make some predictions, but generally speaking, the only thing that we can really predict is that lot, a lot is going to change between now and November. Candidates, polling, and policy position. So expect a, a little bit of everything, but why don't I start with a, a brief overview of the House of Representatives. So as you all know, Democrats currently have a majority. It's a 33-seat it's a 33, 33 majority in the House, which is pretty substantial. There are currently 21 seats that are considered toss-up seats. Most, the majority of those are actually uh, held by Democrats because Trump won uh, a number of states, uh, a number of districts that are currently held by freshman Democrats. So out of those 21, 15 are held by Democrats, six are held by Republicans. I would say that, you know, it's really tough to, to pull back a 33-seat majority. So if I was to guess today, I think 
Republicans have a possibility of gaining some seats back, but generally speaking, it looks at this point like the math is trending towards Democrats keeping, keeping the House. And some of that, of course, will, will depend in some of these districts on how, how uh, candidates above them on the ballot uh, perform. So if, if Donald Trump performs well in those districts, the Republican obviously will get a boost out of that. If the Democratic candidate will, the Democrat will get a boost out of that. But, but generally, summarizing here, the House is, uh, is trending towards staying in a Democratic majority. Interestingly enough, a new Gallup poll came out today that uh, for the first time since 2012 says that six out of 10 Americans want their, their representative in Congress reelected. I don't know if that's representative of this room, but um, I think generally speaking, that's not the case. There's a, there's a large anti-incumbent uh, sort of belief come election season and for the first time since 2012, that's changing. So I think that also sits well, frankly, for, for Democrats in office. Uh, for the U.S. Senate, it's a little bit different. Republicans control the Senate majority currently by six seats, which basically means they need to, to flip, th Democrats would need to flip three seats uh, if, the, if there's a Democratic president, because the, that president will, will be the tie-breaking vote. If uh, there's a Republican president next year, they'll have to switch four seats. So that's not out of the realm of possibility. There's, there's really five seats considered uh, to be toss-ups right now. Arizona, Colorado, Maine, and North Carolina, all held by Republicans, and Alabama held by a Democrat. But generally speaking, these are, these are states where the performance of the presidential candidate will be super important. So I think if, for those of you in any of those states, Alabama, Colorado, Maine, North Carolina, and uh, Arizona. A lot of it rests on who wins the presidential uh, election, and that will flow down to the Senate seats in those states. And obviously, uh, except maybe for, for Maine and Alabama, those are all s states that are, that are trending more purple than red or blue. Uh, so at this point, I would say, again, a, a very early prediction that Republicans will probably hold on to the Senate. They may lose a couple seats, but they'll be able to hold on to the Senate majority by a narrow margin. Uh, I know that's not as exciting as the presidential, so I'm gonna move on to, to talk a little bit about the Democratic primary, which uh, is trending more interesting every day. As you know, three uh, primary states are finished, or close to three, I guess, depending on how, how we're judging Iowa, but Iowa, Nevada, and New Hampshire are finished. I think um, we have uh, the, the current numbers. Our Sanders le leads with 39 uh, delegates, followed by Buttigieg with 25, followed by Biden with 13, and Warren and Klobuchar have eight and seven, respectively. So it's still really early. You know, you need over 1,100 delegates uh, to get the nomination. The, the one interesting factor that we are closely monitoring is that there's a little bit of a discussion whether a majority of delegates matters or not among the Democratic primary. And with this many candidates in the primary, you know, you could, you could basically have the most uh, delegates without necessarily having a majority, which would then, if something wasn't worked out, would, be, would take that all the way to the, 
to the uh, convention in Milwaukee. So that's a little bit concerning for all the candidates, candidly. Um, there's, there's generally a move to get a lot of candidates out soon. If that doesn't happen, it's going to be tough to get a full majority of the, of the delegates. Uh, so the next, the next uh, primary state is South Carolina, and that's this Saturday. Do we have any South Carolinians here? They're all campaigning back home. But, um, but I think, uh, you know, S Vice President Biden has a lead there. Candidly, it's being narrowed by, uh, by Bernie Sanders, and uh, who seems to be moving really strongly. Biden, uh, Vice President Biden's going to get some key endorsements here in the next 24 to 48 hours, which I think will, will help. But, but he, he obviously needs to win South Carolina. And uh, it looks like Bernie Sanders is going to remain strong there. After South Carolina, uh, we move on to Super Tuesday. There's a, a number of Super Tuesday states here in the room. So uh, I'm sure you'll be back by March 3rd to, to uh, participate there. But Super Tuesday is essentially 14 states plus uh, American Samoa and uh, Democrats abroad. So it's a big, it's a big group of uh, really important states. It's an, interesting, it's an interesting election with so many people in there. Right now, uh, if Sanders performs strongly in, during Super Tuesday, which in the early polling states, it looks like he's, he's competitive in almost all of them, uh, his momentum will, be, will continue and it will be hard to, he'll be hard to beat going forward. I think there's a lot of concern amongst the other candidates about uh, a positive performance by Sanders in Super Tuesday. Uh, Biden, Klobuchar, Warren, and Buttigieg really have to perform well on Super Tuesday. They, they're both, they're all uh, obviously still in the race, but without a good performance Super Tuesday, it's very hard to see a path where they could gain enough uh, delegates to be a serious contender. Interestingly enough, uh, you know, we're all hearing a lot about Bloomberg on the news. And uh, there's one Bloomberg fan here. But there, we're hearing a lot of Bloomberg on the news. He hasn't even been on the ballot yet. So the first time he will be on the ballot is on, in the Super Tuesday states. That was sort of his move that he would spend a lot of time uh, on those states. He has spent $160 million on TV ads in those states alone, which, which is significantly larger than anybody else. Um, and so I think for Bloomberg, he obviously can afford to stay in as long as he wants to. He's paying his staff through the election, so there's not a budget concern there. But after spending $160 million on states that, that he's been narrowly focused on, if he doesn't perform well, I think, I think there's a question of what his, his electability will be going uh, forward. But I expect him to, to move forward. Uh, on to the general election. So obviously there's... Tuesday will tell us, or Super Tuesday on March 3rd will tell us a lot. Um, but then we, we're obviously going to move into the general election where there's a whole new dynamic to, to look at. Uh, the reality is, is Trump is going to talk a, a ton about the economy, and he's going to talk about national security almost exclusively uh, if they stay on message. The Democratic nominee is probably going to run on the economy not working for the middle class and health care both of which are issues that are currently uh, pulling through the roof, potentially more even than just generally the economy. National polling 
which I, I don't think really matters. So if anybody, if anybody out there focuses too much on national polling, I want to warn you that national polling doesn't take into any account for the Electoral College. So at the end of the day, national polling is, is who is up nationally and not who's up in the important states. But um, the national polling doesn't consider the Electoral College, so I'm not too concerned about it. But uh, it does currently give about a six-point lead for the Democratic candidate, regardless of who that candidate is. Some people are, are studying how much uh, people are spending because back, you know, traditional thinking was the, the candidates that could raise the most money and spend the most money would win. I, I think that in the 2016 election that was proven wrong. Trump uh, spent, I think, a, about 600, 600 million, 650 million. Clinton spent over a billion dollars all in with parties and everything. And obviously the, the election didn't, didn't show that. Currently, Trump and Bloomberg are both over $200 million in spending and money raised, which is a considerable, considerable amount, considering we still have 253 days left to go. Excuse me. So I think there's, this is going to be a non-traditional election, like the last one was. I think it's very hard to predict what happens. There's a lot of national trends that are conflicting with each other. What I would say is it's important to, to not watch necessarily what the messages are, because I don't think this is going to be a policy-heavy election. <coughs> Excuse me. I think what we really not, need to watch for is who's getting their message out. Who's louder? Who's on TV more often? Who's on the radio? Whose ads are penetrating? And I think if you look at the model from last year, you can't ignore the power of social media. And as it stands right now, just as an example, not making any judgment, but Trump has 72 million Twitter followers. Uh, the, next can the candidate closest to him on the Democratic side is 10 million. So the ability to get your message out and get it out quickly and get it out to a lot of people in a very expensive, costly, advertising-heavy election, you know, people need to pay, pay attention to those things. So that's the, the election and how, uh, how interesting it may be or how frustrating it may be, depending on what side you're on. I wanted to, to close with something we've been spending a lot of time on, which is looking at how the 2020 election is going to impact policy. And all of you, or most of you, are headed to Capitol Hill tomorrow to talk about some really important issues. And those issues uh, obviously could be impacted by the election to some degree. So I wanted to talk a little bit about why I actually am predicting and feel very confident about this is going to be a very different year for policymaking than a traditional presidential election year. Traditionally, everybody would look like a, at an election year like 2020 and immediately think nothing is going to happen in the, on the Hill or nothing is going to get signed into law and you'll have to wait till a non-election year. You know, I think that there's uh, traditional thinking is probably right on that. This year is going to be different. The reality is we're seeing a ton of election activity happening. We're seeing, I'm sorry, policy activity happening. If you just look at the th past three months alone, all 12 appropriations bills to fund the entire government were passed on a bipartisan basis and signed into law. The entire policy for, for the Department of Defense was, thank you, was uh, passed and signed into law. A massive, re the largest reform of 
retirement security was passed into, and signed into law. There's a whole host of issues that were passed into, and signed into law towards the end of next year and the beginning of this year. That just shows that I think this is going to be a very different year. And here's why that's happening. Despite the fact that this could be the most partisan Congress in our history, and hyper-partisanship on both sides of the aisle is at just record levels, there's a lot of bipartisanship happening behind the scenes. And it seems like parties are working on a parallel track where they fight very viciously publicly, and they go behind the scenes and they work on the issues that I refer to as sort of below the fold, where they're not, they're not a, a key issue in the press, but they're a big deal, and Republicans and Democrats come together behind the scenes to work on them. There's a ton of stuff like that happening right now, not only between Republicans and Democrats, but Republicans and Democrats in both the House and Senate all working together towards a common bill. And these are significant pieces of legislation. So I would say that, first of all, tomorrow your, your day on the Hill is really important because this will be a heavy policymaking year despite what others may say. And even tomorrow on the Hill you may, you may hear somebody say, ah, you know, we're not going to be able to do a lot before the election. I, I think that's wrong, and I think the last three months have shown it. I also think that, you know, it's, it's even that much more important to stay engaged with policymakers. Policymakers in an election year, every House member that you meet with tomorrow is up for election. A third of the senators that you meet with tomorrow are up for election. People need wins back home. They want to hear from constituents. They want to hear what's happening. They want to hear what's important. And they want to be able to go home and talk about the, the accomplishments that they've had. And in a Congress that doesn't pass or get bills signed into law, that's very difficult. There's a real incentive for a lot to get done. So I would expect an active first half of this year at least through, uh, you know, through June should be really active. And I'm really excited that you're here. You should be really uh, proud of yourselves for, for not only making the trip to D.C., but being committed to talk about these issues. And it's, you know, coming to D.C. for, for everybody. You know, people don't, aren't, aren't necessarily all believing in D.C. these days. And to be able to come here and your willingness to meet with your representatives and senators is really important and a really big deal. I commend you for it. Thank you for having me here, and I'll take some questions if uh, anybody has them. All right, there's a couple out there. Thank you. <clears throat> Mr. Cooper, this is uh, Ray Campbell from Illinois. Um, thank you for that very good presentation. Um, Based upon the current crop of candidates and your analysis of them and, you know, kind of what's all going on, do you see anybody that, if they don't get the nomination, might come out as an independent, which could really sway things? I really don't. You know, we, we actually had this conversation this morning at my office. I think it's – the reality is the, the nomination can – extend a fairly long period of time, and there is a cutoff point to get on the ballot. And so I don't see that happening. People have talked about it. Where, you know, People have theorized that with a Sanders or a Bloomberg. I think Bloomberg would have done it before entering this if he wanted to. And Sanders is obviously in the lead, so he's going he's to be in there for a while at least. So I, I personally don't see that happening. And, and I also think an independent candidate would probably 
do more harm to Democrats and Republicans, if I was to guess. Um, so that's where, that's where things uh, in my mind stand. Any other questions? There's one far, far in the back there. Thank you. Uh, it's Paul D'Addario from Virginia. I'm curious your expectation for turnout. That seems to be a word that comes up in many elections. And uh, if you see the trends changing or expect them to change this year, for example, the elderly people tend to vote in a higher percentage than um, younger voters. Appreciate your thoughts. Yeah, th thank you for that. It's a, I think turnout is a little hard to tell with just three, three states reporting. Um, I think turnout is not at record levels, for sure. And I haven't seen the breakout amongst a variety of demographics, but I think this needs, to, for both sides, it really needs to be a big turnout year. For, for, on the Democratic side, the, the party is fairly split in the primary, even though Sanders has a significant lead. You know, that's, that's split over seven or eight candidates in all of these states so far, with a new candidate emerging in these Super Tuesday states. On the Republican side, you know, the, the entire party is not, is not uh, expressed a willingness to vote for, for President Trump. So both sides really need a fairly strong turnout model to win. And turnout's going to play a big role, but, but I don't really have an assessment this early on, on where that's going. But that's a really good question, Paul. Maybe one back at the... The Bloomberg machinery that's in place, a lot of people are saying if he doesn't get the nomination that he intends to turn that machinery over to whoever the candidate is. What is the likelihood of that happening or the candidate accepting it if that offer is made? That's a good question. Um, maybe best asked to, to Mike Bloomberg, but I, uh, <laughs> my, my guess would be this. I think anybody who's currently, I think people are pretty sincere that anybody on the Democratic side that's currently running and that's a viable candidate will try to turn their, their operation over to the nominee. And, and frankly, in this divided of a primary, just, just as it was on the Republican side in 2016, I think they need it. So I anticipate that happening. I don't really, you know, Mike Bloomberg has mentioned that. I don't really know what that entirely entails, turning over your, your operation, but... I would, I would guess that he would certainly help uh, from a funding standpoint, from a staffing standpoint, and uh, from an endorsement standpoint. But hard to, hard to tell how, how the remaining debates and, uh, and fights go from here and where that ends up. But I, I would suspect everybody would be on board at the end of the day. And if, if there's one more question, we'll take one more for Charles. What's your... Oh, great. So I wanted to switch gears to um, more policy-oriented. I'm the um, president of our uh, of ACB senior affiliate, and I've noticed that in recent budgets, um, nobody seems to get cut. Um, some people are even getting increases, but blindness programs don't seem to be getting any increases. What is, well, there's a lot wrong with that picture, but 
What is it that we have to do to make our case such that we will sometimes be in the groups that do get some of those increases if they can, assuming we continue to have increases in the years to come and a recession doesn't change the whole picture? Thank you for your question. There's obviously a number of programs that I think you're, you're referring to, but in order of importance, the most important thing is to, be, to remain engaged and to get your friends and colleagues and, and uh, coworkers engaged as much as you can on these issues. Policymakers need to hear not once a year, not twice a year, a continuous discussion about these issues to remain relevant. And think about, think about who else is out there extremely well-funded entities that are talking about their priorities, that are, that are always here in D.C., that have, have huge constituencies. And, and the reality is we all need to compete with that. So you have a really good team on the ground here in D.C. I would leverage them as much as possible. But, but we all sort of have a role in this, in the advocacy game. And I think your role is to not only make sure that when you're up here, you're voicing those... those uh, concerns and priorities to your members of Congress and senators and staff, but that you're also doing it back home and that you're staying in regular contact, that you're making sure others are staying in regular contact, that this is not an issue that they sort of hear about once a year or twice a year. This is an issue that is, is front, of, front and center, not, not just from one person, but, but from a lot of people. So I know that's easier said than done, but I, I truly believe that's sort of the winning formula on getting these issues across the finish line. And the ones that you're talking about are not, you know, close to the top of the list in terms of, of funding expense. So these are hopefully easier issues for them to, to find funding for, but they, they need to hear about it often and they need to hear about it from a lot of people. So with that, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate being here and good luck for the rest of your stay. Thank you.